Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed. Good day wherever you are listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, October 5th, 2007. This week episode 53 comes to you from Studio B in Coriopolis, PA. My name is Joe Hughes or Radio Joe and here with me back in the studio is my co-host Cliff Slotnick. Hey Joe, my the room kind of smells like perfume. <laughs> we had a uh, guest host in last week. Want to make sure we thank Barb Jackson for stopping in and taking Cliff's spot while he was out of the country for a, a couple of days there. Also with us is the cyber jockey, CJ, Zach Slotner. I'm here, Joe. All right, CJ. Always got his hand on the button there. All right. Well, when you get a chance, check us out at www.iaqradio.com. We also have been getting more requests for the IAQ console credits available by emailing me after the show at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Joe.h-u-g-h-e-s. Today's segments include the microband trivia quiz. Bob and Gail Brandis are back, and we're looking forward to having them on. Our current events segment and the IAQ radio follow-up segment. So we'll be uh, stopping to make sure that we follow up on a few things that we did earlier in the year and also uh, some current events. And that's also what we'll be talking about with Bob and Gail. They've got some really interesting current research, etc., that we'll be going through. Before we go there, let's stop and thank our sponsors First, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dryease.com that's d-r-i hyphen e-a-z.com john don products where restoration and abatement contractors shop at john don j-o-n-d-o-n.com okay to contact the show live by phone or text message just go to the www.talkshoe.com website and follow the directions to get your pin number our show id number is one five you can also send us suggestions or questions by email. I gave mine earlier. Cliff's is Cliff Zlotnick. That's C Zlotnick, Z L O T N I K at C S dot com. No, unsmoke. Oh, on unsmoke.com. Sorry about that. Cliff, Cliff. Zlotnick at unsmoke.com. Got it. All right. A little mix up on my notes here. Cliff Z L O T N I K at 
unsmoke.com. And, of course, you can always go to the forum section on iaqradio.com. Last but not least, visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's see if we got a little intro music for the Brandis. But first, the oh, I'm sorry. Thank you, Doug. CJ. Congratulations to Chad Seams for answering last week's microband trivia question which involved clarification of the difference between building-related illness and sick building syndrome. Chad's correct answer is posted on the IAQ Radio website under Trivia. We take this opportunity to remind our audience that you can win some cool IAQ Radio stuff by answering microband trivia questions. Some past trivia questions are still in play. You can answer online at IAQ Radio website, by phone, by fax, or by email. Zach, the envelope, please. The microband trivia question for Friday, October 5, 2007, comes from the occupational hygiene and medical fields. We're looking for a definition and a cause. What is conjunctivitis and what are the common causes of it? Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. All right, we're working on the microband trivia questions. Got a few still out there in play, and we've got some new IAQ radio uh, gifts available for those that answer correctly. So. Get on those trivia questions. All right. Now, CJ, I was a little ahead of myself, but we're back. How about a little intro music for our special guest? Absolutely, Joe. special one for Bob and Gail. Bob Brandis is the president of Occupational and Environmental Health Consulting Services located in Hinsdale, Illinois. Dr. Bob has a PhD in Environmental Safety and Health, a master's in Public Health, and dual undergraduate degrees in Thermomechanical Engineering and Environmental Engineering. He is a registered PE a certified industrial hygienist, a certified safety professional, and a certified mold remediator with over 30 years of experience in the safety and environmental fields. He also worked as a corporate safety manager for major healthcare corporations for over 15 years and has served as the president of his own environmental consulting firm since 1984. He's also been a guest lecturer and trainer for many years, has authored numerous publications on chemical safety and microbial control for the hospital and healthcare manufacturing setting, as well as the mold consulting and remediation industries. His latest books are Worldwide Exposure Standards for Mold and Bacteria, now in its seventh edition, Post-Remediation Verification and Clearance Testing for Mold and Bacteria, and global occupational exposure limits for over 5,000 chemicals. I can tell you that when I go out and do courses, a lot of people are very familiar with the PRV book and say they use it on a regular basis, as I do as well. 
Gail, his uh, wife, is the director of training service for, for, for Occupational and Environmental Health Consulting Services. She has a master's degree in industrial safety management from Northern Illinois University and a BS in secondary science education from the University of Delaware. She's also a certified safety professional, a certified indoor environmental consultant, and an Illinois state licensed asbestos inspector and management planner. She's been involved in safety and health consulting for industries and institutions for over 25 years and is responsible for developing and conducting safety training sessions for client companies in both English and Spanish on a wide variety of topics. She's also been teaching EPA-accredited safety training classes at the Chicago area colleges and universities for about 20 years, and she helped to co-author three books that we mentioned earlier with her husband, Bob. I tell you what, this is the first time I ran out of room on the introduction line because there were so many letters behind the names. I, I couldn't get them all on. Bob and Gail, I hope we have you on the line here, and uh, I apologize if I didn't get one of your uh, credentials on the invitation list. Yeah, we're on the line here, Joe. All right. Welcome, Bob, and welcome, Gail. All right, Joe. Hello. Okay. Well, that's, thanks again for joining us. Um, we wanted to discuss some current events in indoor environmental quality and, and also your current research projects. And before the show, I was looking back at an old, uh, not so old, but an April issue of Indoor Environment Connections where Bob had written an article titled Interlaboratory Variability in Spore Trap Analysis. What was the reason you chose to focus some of your research on this subject, Bob? Well, what triggered that was we were working on a legal case, and we got one of those serious lab results where the culturable levels for cladosporium were higher than the spore trap levels. And I went to the lab and I said, you need to recount the spore trap slide. They came back to me and said, the result's exactly the same. Now, I know something about counting spore trap size, and no two analysts that get exactly the same result. So I was, I was disturbed by that response from the lab and made a decision to send the slides to a second lab to be analyzed. And not surprisingly, the results came back far different. Being that this was a legal case, that concerned me. And that kind of led to this whole issue of uh, doing research on interlaboratory variation of spore trap slides. Was the, the second uh, sample result higher or, or lower than the first? Oh, level? it was four times higher. Okay, I and got sometimes it. Different, sometimes different genera were identified as well. The that, genera were not the same from lab to lab. In the one sample that came back and was counted twice, and they said they had the same result twice. Um, how would you account for that, seeing how two analysts would look at it differently? So, uh, well, okay. I, I, the, re, the reality is um, it was a set response from the lab. I, I talked to the lab director afterwards, and I said, you and I both know that can't happen. You can't get the same result. <laughs> right. Um, and they have since changed their response when you ask for a recount. And I, I talked to other labs about this because what I ended up doing with these initial four slides is sending them to four uh, MPAT uh, proficient laboratories 
we weren't dealing with startup labs. We were dealing with labs that have been in business for many, many years, uh, and they all volunteered to analyze these initial four slides. And then I took the, all those results and uh, analyzed them. And the labs couldn't even accurately agree on cladosporium concentrations. And, and that's important because that's an easy, yeah, that's, easy sport to identify. Correct? Oh, it's a very easy sport to identify. Okay. And the results were at least plus or minus fifty percent when you averaged all of the seven labs together. Bob, isn't there a requirement in order to get the certification and maintain it that you have to get what eighty-five percent? Well, you have to understand that what the AIHA proficiency means is. It's not a concentration. It's simply a spore identification. Right. So they send a slide out with ancillium or clado or something on it, and if you get it right 85% of the time that it's a clado spore or a penicillium spore, um, that means you're proficient. But it has nothing to do with concentration, and that worries me because there is a lot of variability out there. And, you know, if you get a result that looks like the environment's acceptable and the lab undercounted it, you know, you're, you still have a client that's symptomatic because the lab result was lower than it should have been. One other issue that I don't know has been well explored also is the fact that we're not always counting the exact same field of view on the slide. Labs rarely count the 100% of the slide. So if you have even the same analyst look at one end and then they look at the other end, you're going to get different results. So what part of that of the entire area are they looking at? Can that be standardized? Should they read 100%? There's so many issues, not just identification, but the actual procedure. What's your feeling on this 85%? You know, it's impressive. You know, I'd be happy if when my kids were in, in school, if they brought, you know, got 85%, I'm thinking that's a good solid B. But if you think about 85%, you know, if all the planes that took off, only 85% landed where they were supposed to be or landed <laughs> safely, it's a pretty high uh, rate of error. Well, um, I can tell you that from a, a chemical viewpoint, if you're a, uh an AIHA-accredited lab, they require at least 95% concentration accuracy on your accreditation sample. So the, and, and that's, you know, that's a concentration and identification of the particular chemical. So the, the proficiency by AIHA for molds is a far weaker standard than it is for chemicals. And personally, I don't think that 85% is tight enough. If you can't look at a cladospore and say it's clado, um, that's a problem. Right, absolutely. <laughs> I can tell absolutely. you that when, they, when the laboratories looked at the slides for clado, nine, you know, most of them found it. But for penicillium, basidial spores, and on and on, the percent of labs who actually found the spores steadily decreased to something like one out of four found something and the rest didn't. Another issue, too, is when we look at asbestos sampling and the like, those procedures are very well defined. But when you talk to the different labs on spore trap analysis, oh, I use 400X, oh, I use 600X, they're not even using the same magnification. 
from lab to lab. Right. And they also don't use the same stain, and they also don't use the same field of view on the microscope. So if you have a microscope that has a smaller field of view, you see it differently than some the large field of view microscope. So there's just a, a tremendous amount of variability out there, and um, it it worries me because not not only from a legal point of view, but also in terms of service to the client. So many people rely just on spore trap results. They don't back that up with culturable results as well. And they're hanging their hat on results that may not be that reliable. Well, you also mentioned in, in this article the, the difference between sampling error and analytical error. And I, I think we've just talked a bit about analytical error. What's the most common sampling error that you feel investigators are guilty of out there? Yeah, the most common sampling area in all types of sampling is not getting the volume accurate. You can miss that by your stopwatch time, and you can miss it by your volumetric calibration. Um, it's a common issue. I've been around for a long time, and uh, it's you know you can spend a lot of money on a lot of fancy calibration devices. It, it's there, and that's the biggest sampling error that actually occurs. But in, in the article, you mentioned that that really only accounts for maybe about, what is it, 10% of the of the overall problem and that the analytical error is really, at least the impression I got, is a much bigger issue. Oh, absolutely. The analytical error is four or five times what that sampling error is. Okay. And that goes back to the, you know, the fact that some labs analyze the whole trace, which I still have trouble wrapping my head around. Um do, do they really analyze the whole trace, Bob? Well, you, you have to read the fine print, Joe. <laughs> um, generally, they still look at 25% of the slide. But if they're looking, let's say they find one spore of nigrospora or, or one spore of epicunium. If they do, then they will look at more of the slide to see if there's more of those single spores. But if they're looking at 25% of the slide and they count 100 penicillium or 100 claro, they're done counting that. They will not look further. They only look at 100% when you're dealing with, with single spore counts. So they try to increase the accuracy of those smaller counts by looking at more of the slide. So a single sample? Well, it's a, it's a single sample. But let's, let's say you look at 25% of the slide and you only find one spore of a particular genera. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that could mean, is it more than that? Uh, was it just, did it accidentally fall on there? So when they see those single spores, then they look for them on more of the slide. If, if it's a, a really small number or was there some kind of bounce effect or something broke up and, and there really was a higher count of a smaller or individual spore types. I see. Now, okay, you mentioned that some labs analyze at 400x, some use 600x, and in the article you state that there is good scientific evidence showing that increasing the level of magnification during examination of spore trap slides will yield higher spore counts. Why would labs continue to use 400x? Well, I think... A large part of it has to do with history. 400x uh, for looking at um, 
uh, pollen and, and mold spores in the air uh, has been a standard for many, many years, going all the way back to the 50s. Um, and when you look at all the reference in the literature, you know, that's how they looked at stuff. Now, today, better optical microscopes that can look at 600x or 1,000x or whatever are far less costly and more readily available. And so now you take a look at that stuff, and you see more because some of the mold spores clearly are smaller. <laughs> the problem with that is what's your reference? If you look at a spore trap at 1,000x and you find lots and lots more spores, you can't compare that number to what's historically in the literature. On the other hand, from a, a client symptomatology, could they be, be, be being bothered by these other spores that we didn't see in the past? Sure they could be. But it, again, it raises an issue that we look at an environment and we get a, a low spore count at 400x. You take that same slide, look at it at 1,000x, and you see four times as many spores. So one says it could be bothering the people at 1,000x, and then when you look at it at 400x, it says, no, it's not bothering the people. Hmm. Um, it, it is an issue in the industry that we need to deal with in the long term. The problem is, looking at it at 1,000x, the cost goes up by an order of magnitude. Because your field of view is less, too. And, and so, you know, we, we barely can get clients to afford existing spore trap methodology. If you go and go to them and say, oh, we'll do something that's better and it'll cost you 10 times as much, people won't do it. So you have to do, you know, kind of a cost-benefit analysis. We at least get some information that's better than no information. We have to be cautious in how we interpret data as being acceptable or not acceptable. We always do culturables along with total spore data kind of a belt and suspenders mentality, but it uh, has uh, helped us out on many occasions rather than just relying on the sport trap data. Well, yeah, that was one of the next questions I had. As I do training around the country for mold remediation contractors, they indicate to me that almost all post-remediation verification these days is visual inspection, an olfactory inspection, followed by spore trap sampling. Mm -hmm. Is that, I mean, is that the same trend you see, and is that a good trend? Uh, it sounds like you're saying that's not. But on the other hand, you know, is that better than instead of just spore trap sampling, doing viable sampling? What if we can well, only do one or the other? Well, actually, it's probably a much bigger question than that, Joe. Okay. We, uh, as an outgrowth of the first uh, variability project, uh, conducted a, a secondary research project, and even did a third one. And the third one, well, the second one dealt with a larger sample on variability, and it essentially produced the same result. But the third research project looked at how clean is what, how clean is an environment that we normally accept as being clean? So we, we had a condo that had a significant uh, penicillium problem due to water from a fire. Uh, contractor came in, cleaned the space, standard methodologies, HEPA vacuumed, and then painted the affected surfaces with uh, encapsulating paint. 
so absolutely it was hepavax hep absolutely it was visually clean everything was absolutely dry we did some numbers and they were relatively low and then we went in there with a leaf blower and the mold spore readings skyrocketed they went up to over 20,000 so here's an environment that based upon standard remediation protocols for PRV, it would have passed. But clearly, it was not a clean environment. And and that's this issue with, you know, what is cleanliness assurance? And that's what PRV is supposed to be doing. Uh, when we look at post-remediation verification level three, which is where we have a, an occupant that is potentially sensitive, we normally require air washing of that environment as part of the remediation protocol. But there's nothing in the literature, at least up to this point, that showed or demonstrated that that was necessary and effective. And this research project number three clearly showed both on a particle count basis as well as on a mold spore basis that air washing is really important to clean up an environment. Simple HEPA vacuuming and painting or sealing stuff in really doesn't get what's hiding in the nooks and crannies. I've got a question for you, Bob, on the on this particular project. The surfaces that were painted, could you give me an idea of what they were? Was this uh, exposed framing? Uh, what were the surfaces involved here? It was exposed framing. This was... Um, a two-level condo building, and uh, the fire occurred in the condo above. And in order to meet fire code, they had triple layers of uh, fire-rated drywall on the ceiling between the first and second floor. So the water got trapped in that triple-layered cavity and grew lots and lots of penicillium. So when the drywall was removed, you opened it up, and there was penicillium growing on all the structural wood members. Uh, those were subsequently sanded down, uh, HEPA vacuumed, and then sealed with a with basically a Foster's product. I, I guess my, my, my question is this. Uh, in, in dealing with fire restoration, typically when sealers are used, uh, they're applied with an airless paint sprayer. And the reason they use an airless paint sprayer is we're trying to get a continuous film on all of these surfaces. So you would have had these cracks and crevices, and if someone is sealing them, what I'm trying to figure out is why, whether it was cleaned or not, that the encapsulant didn't lock down this dust or didn't lock down these spores. So I'm just wondering whether it was an application situation, you know, because it would just seem to me that if they had locked it down properly with that encapsulant that they shouldn't have you know, that they shouldn't have gotten into the air unless there were, you know, a couple areas that were missed. Do you have any idea how we could account for the anomaly? Well, I'm, first of all, I'm not convinced that it's an anomaly because we conducted a, a similar test in other environments. Just in a wall structure or a ceiling structure, there are gaps between the boards and the two-by-fours and the plywood and, and the exterior sheathing. Um, and these, these little gaps, um, particularly if, let's say, you have an older structure where those gaps have been infiltrating for many years, they have lots and lots of dust and spores in them. And HEPA vacuuming doesn't 
get that stuff out. And, and as an interesting um, research uh, dimension to that, if you remember the, the anthrax spore issues with the post office and the newspaper places, CDC had Sandia Laboratories do a, a method validation looking at which techniques give uh, better PRV for anthrax. And they looked at uh, vacuum samples, tape samples, and swab samples. Guess which ones were the worst sampling technique? HEPA vacuuming. CDC no longer recommends HEPA vacuuming for anthrax for PRV because it doesn't work. It's less than 20% effective. And the anthrax spores uh, are the same size mold spores. So it isn't just this, this uh, particular case. I mean, there is a significant study out there that says HEPA vacuuming really doesn't get all the stuff up. You know, back, to, back to the use of the leaf blower. Um, I, I'm a believer in leaf blowers myself as part of the remediation process. And uh, I, I would like to know, are you in favor of you know, using leaf blowers as, you know, to kind of stir things up as part of the remediation process? Do you think that's a good idea? Oh, absolutely. And not only just a leaf blower, you need to have a particle counter. You need to continue to air wash the space let the air scrubbers take the particles and, and mold spores out, air wash it again, and realistically you need to do it three times. And by the, when you're done, you will know because the particle counts will be similar to the outside or makeup air coming into your container. You have to be careful, though, if you're doing it in a hospital. You have to have double wall containment and the like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, if, I'm, I'm sure if you've done air washing before, you're just... The cloud that it generates is just unbelievable. You look at a, a place and you go, oh, well, this is fairly clean, and then you hit it with a leaf blower, and there's just clouds of stuff that appear. Right. My, my tendency in doing it is to do it pretty early, uh, you know, in the project, you know, as part of demolition and, and, and so on and so forth, rather than, uh, you know, having to do it later. But I guess there's probably an advantage to doing it later as well. As part of the final cleaning process, we find that it can be indispensable and can make up for some of the inadequacies we have with the sampling, the final sampling process, be it spore trap, swab, or tape. So this, this area where we got these dust clouds from, we had done tape and swab samples and air samples prior to using a leaf blower, and they all came back very low. So if we had just used those methods, for PRV, whether it was tape or swab or air, by spore trap, they, we would have said, oh, it, it, it's fine, it's you know, close enough. And then we blew it out, and it was just a cloud of dust. Huh. So we really think that, that the blowdown should be an integral part, necessary part of the final cleaning process. You know, one of the interesting things that you said, if you if you go back and you look at this whole issue of HEPA filtration, the reason they were using these HEPA filters is to prevent contaminants, you know, from passing through the filter and getting into the air, but they forgot the major problem of the contaminants weren't getting into the vacuum to begin with based on your right. research. Pretty interesting. And another issue that we're going to be discussing at the IAQA conference and an article that's coming in IEC next month is regarding the HEPA filtered equipment. Is it doing what you really expect it to do? 
and we've seen a lot of equipment that's been out in the field for for many many years is not really HEPA efficient anymore and is actually a particle pump pushing fibers and particles back into the air. So that's another auxiliary issue we're going to be exploring at the conference and in IEC next month. You you know, one of my recommendations has been to not necessarily use HEPA filters for the whole mold remediation process. The vacuums are expensive. The equipment is expensive. I think that the efficiencies on vacuuming with some of those are limited based on, you know, the exhaust. You know, there's there's a lot of restriction there. And uh, you know, I certainly would recommend using them for the, you know, final clearance and so on and so forth. But, I mean, I've seen people using these real expensive vacuums, and they're dealing with major construction debris and, you know, picking up chunks of drywall. And I don't think that those vacuums were intended for that particular application. That's true. I think you can abuse the equipment. Though I do think a properly functioning air scrubber uh, is very important for keeping particle levels um, within reasonable le- levels during demolition because you can kick up huge numbers of, uh, of particles during demo. Do you, so, think, do you think that the recommendations that are commonly touted are these four to six air changes, do you think that that's sufficient during demolition or do you think it should be higher than that? That's a, that's a very good question. Um, the air changes per hour, uh, I think you're limited, obviously, by your how much negative pressure you, you want to have as far as being able to keep the containment up and not suck your walls down. But it would seem prudent to have additional air changes during heavy demolition, just by having air scrubbers that aren't going to be changing your pressure differential, but giving you more air changes per hour. Bob, any Yeah, thoughts? well, it's, you know, the whole concept of the four to six air changes per hour is, is negative pressure uh, differential. It doesn't stop you from adding additional, just recirculating air scrubbers in an environment. And if we're dealing with a, a fairly significant mold contamination project, we will put recirculating scrubbers into that project prior to demolition to get the counts down before the workers go in there. And then while they're actually ripping the stuff out, we try and keep the recirculating air scrubbers near where they're ripping it out. So that stuff sucks up the dust and spores very quickly rather than have them just go into the containment and get stirred up due to the activity. So you have to learn to, to manage not only the air changes but the airflow within the containment and use internal air scrubbers to keep particle count down. Does the use of these – okay, let me clarify for everybody <clears throat> that's listening. You obviously have these areas – under a negative pressure so that you're using an air filtration device exhausted to outside of the area and preferably outdoors. But what you're also saying is that you should have at least one, if not several scrubbers, depending on the size of the area, just recirculating air within the work area. That's correct. What a brilliant, what a brilliant term. I think I've been to a lot of classes, and I don't think I've in, and done a lot of reading, and I don't think I've ever heard that term recirculating air scrubber before, but it, it's a pretty simple definition of what it is and how it works and how it doesn't affect your pressure differential. And uh, uh, hang on a second. <laughs> Do we, uh, are, are we, I'm curious, Bob, does the recirculating uh, or Gail, either one, uh, scrubber, I assume you still have to 
monitor what types of changes that would have or what type of effect that would have on your negative pressure? It really, it really shouldn't. If it's just going in one side, coming back out the other, it really, for the entire containment, it should not have any uh, change at all in the negative pressure. Yeah, there, there also is secondary benefits to those recirculating air scrubbers is it, it helps the, keep the air circulating in the space and the workers don't get as warm because there's good air movement, not only just from a negative pressure point of view, but just the air going around and around in the space. I would think you could also set it up in a way that would help you get more makeup air into the contained area, which is sometimes a problem with these decontamination units that people build. Yeah, if you're doing one room and you have an older building where you're concerned about drawing spores in from the wall cavities as makeup air, it would be nice to have one that can be can come into the space and give you clean makeup air or your outside level, for example, or very high in the summertime. It can somewhat clean that air before it comes in as makeup air. So, yeah, it has quite a few different benefits. Now, I, I had another quote from this article that I just have to ask you about. It said that some indoor environmental consultants justify ignoring the issue of analytical air in spore trap analysis, claiming that normal variation in the concentration of total mold spores in the air far exceeds the variation introduced in the laboratory. This assumption is not based on scientific research, it is also inconsistent with published long-term microbial studies of controlled indoor environments. And you further state, granted, there can be a large variation in indoor mold spore concentrations when mold spores are disturbed, but most monitoring is done prior to or after mold spores have been. We hear that two side-by-side samples can have significantly different results. Are you saying this is more likely to be due to analytical error than anything else? Well, that's kind of what the research shows. Um, this, the secondary research uh, project that we did is we took four different type of samplers. We put them into a sampling uh, matrix where all the samplers were within two inches of each other. And clearly, the there is no way with that much air going into the samplers that there was any difference in concentration within two inches of each other. Um, and, and the literature, realistically, in terms of spore concentrations, um, especially if you read the stuff um, published by, by England and, and NASA doing um, high atmospheric spore counts, there isn't that much variation. And what this data showed in, in these many, many samples that we took is the variation is in the lab counting, not actually an air concentration. And when you, if you go to literature and try and find proof that mold spore concentrations in an ordinary environment differs by an order of magnitude from five minutes samples, you can't find that in the literature. There, there is no reference I have seen going through thousands of papers that have actually substantiated that. That's more of someone just kind of said something and, and it kind of spread. Um, so, I, you know, my experience and, and based on this research is the problem is the laboratory variability, not the air variability. 
I think that's what Cliff would call the parrot effect, uh, that people just parrot what they've heard somewhere else and they don't really verify why they have heard that. Sure, we've seen samples where there was a variability in two samples that were taken in the same room, but no one ever goes on to explain that that may well be because of the analytical error, not necessarily the fact that uh, you know spore, spore sampling in that area varies that much from one spot to another, I guess. Uh-huh. All right. Well, listen, Bob, Gail, if you don't mind, we've got uh, a couple of brief current events and uh, what we some follow-up we need to do, and then we'd like to bring you back on in about five minutes or less. Okay. Sounds great. Great. Thank you. Pound of water. Pound of three, four. Bring it on round and rip it on down. Water, three, four. All right. I've got an IAQ radio follow-up. We've been trying to make sure that we follow up on things that we've talked about earlier in the year. Prior to our summer break, we were watching closely and commenting on an announcement by the American IAQ Council that they would be releasing the exact page number in references that council exam questions were taken from. We also discussed the IAQA's call to action and petitions that were circulated trying to get IAQ council to rethink this decision and not release these page numbers. I am happy to report that the actions of many concerned industry members appears to have helped forge the compromise by the IAQ Council. Instead of releasing page numbers where exam questions come from, they released study guides that gave people preparing for the exams better direction on what chapters and sections of reference materials to focus on without going to the extent of giving out exact page numbers. I want to thank everyone that commented, signed petitions, etc., and also thank the leadership of the IAQ Council for considering their comments and coming up with a compromise position. I also have a follow-up to last week's segment. Uh, Glenn Fellman, during his IEQ News segment, stated, quote, DDT wiped out bald eagles and other species, unquote. This statement perpetuates a myth about DDT, which is not true. For indisputable evidence on the inaccuracy of the statement, go to www.junkscience.com, 100 Myths About DDT. Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Our listeners may not know that I do have a background in pest control and have written several articles which provide suggestions for inspection, diagnosis, treatment, and control of bed bugs. For reprints of these articles, contact IAQ Radio or Microvan Systems. Thank you, Cliff. Last week we did discuss bed bugs in detail. It was a shame uh, Cliff wasn't here. Actually, Glenn uh, has had, he's got a cover article coming out, I believe, in this month's edition on bed bugs. And that should be an interesting one. All right, we've also got a couple current events real quickly. I, I just want to mention that the Indoor Air Quality Association members out there, October 9th is the last day to vote for members of your board of directors. This year there are five people to choose from, and only two of the five are current members of the board of directors. The opportunity to shape the leadership of your association that everyone eligible should take seriously. If you haven't voted and want to contact IAQA at 301-231-8388, you can get a copy of the ballot and get your vote in. This is a big improvement over some previous elections when IAQA only had three or four candidates running for three open seats. It's great to see members interested in shaping the future of their association and volunteering to run for the board of directors. We've got five excellent candidates 
Keep up the good work. I've got a story that comes from the Toledo Blade. October 4th, Columbus. Those alleging illness from mold exposure must prove through a medical expert that the toxin can and did in fact cause the disease, the Ohio Supreme Court ruled yesterday. In a six-to-one decision, the court used a lawsuit filed in 2000 by 15 employees of the Ottawa County Board of Mental Retardation and Development Disabilities against their former landlord to adopt a two-pronged federal test that one justice declared shut the door to the plaintiffs before their case had begun. The employees sued the owner and former managers of the Buckeye Building in Port Clinton, alleging that mold permeating from damp conditions caused frequent headaches, nausea, respiratory problems, and other symptoms. Subsequent testing revealed the presence of five separate mold spores, one of which could have caused the symptoms described. But the defendants succeeded in convincing the County Court of Common Pleas to grant them summary judgment on the grounds that the employee's medical expert, a respiratory disease specialist, failed to connect the final dots between this particular mold and ailments. On appeal, the Toledo-based Sixth District Court of Appeals revived the case, pointing to other non-expert evidence such as microbial testing and medical records that warranted allowing the case to proceed. The all-Republican Supreme Court has now reversed that decision. Quote, without expert testimony to establish both general causation and specific causation, a claimant cannot establish the prima facie case of exposure to mold or other toxic substance, unquote, wrote Justice Terrell O'Donnell for the majority. Justice Paul Pfeiffer countered there was no need to end the case at this early stage. Quote, they have presented evidence on every essential element of their claims, unquote, he wrote. Whether they have presented enough evidence to succeed at trial is meaningless at this point. They have done enough to clear the low hurdle of summary judgment. Unfortunately, the majority opinion has turned the low hurdle into a brick wall. Tom Antonini, a Toledo attorney for the building owner and former manager, said, the building remains in use with new tenants and that the mold was never a pervasive problem. He said the plaintiff's medical expert did not physically examine the employees and did not rule out other potential causes for their symptoms inside and outside the workplace. It seems to me that five to ten years ago, mold seemed to be the so-called hot tort for the time, but I think it has not taken on as much steam as anticipated, Mr. Antonini said. The court is doing its role, in my view, of serving as gatekeeper and not allowing what amounts to junk science into the courtroom, he said. The plaintiff's Sandusky attorney, Margaret M. Murray, said yesterday's decision raises the bar plaintiffs must clear to avoid having their case dismissed in the first inning. Summary judgment is supposed to be used with a view of allowing cases that should be be tried to be tried, but not a complete bar to trying cases, she said. For further information, you can call contact Jim Provence. It's spelled P-R-O-V-A-N-C-E at the, the, the Toledo Blade. His email address is jprovance, P-R-O-V-A-N-C-E at theblade.com. Or you can call him at 614-221-0496. Back to you, Joe. Okay, Cliff, that seems to kind of follow along with what Ed Cross was saying a couple of weeks ago, that these cases haven't been uh, doing all that well over the last few years, and uh, I, we will keep uh, keep our listeners up to date on how things go. Um, we're not making any judgment one way or another, no. but uh, we're reporting the news here. So, all right, well, let's move back to our, our guest, uh, Bob and Gail Brandis. Do we have you back on the line? Hi. Hi. All right. I don't know if uh, you had any comments on the current events or not, Bob, but Gail, either way. But, uh, you know, we we try and uh, 
present both sides of the issues and then let people decide for themselves, I guess. Anyhow, let's move on to um, the other research project that we were starting to allude to earlier. And Bob, I believe you were going to work on the collection efficiency or, or determining the collection efficiency of some of the leading spore trap samplers out there. We're seeing a lot of advertising about, you know, our spore trap sampler has the best collection efficiency and so on and so forth. How's that coming along without giving away everything? <laughs> well, the, the research uh, sampling, that's uh, been done now for almost a year. And um, the study involved sampling uh, four different types of spore samplers, the uh, aerosol, the um, <clears throat> Micro 5, the Allergenco D, and the Cyclex D, all at the same time at three different concentrations, two different spots. So they were dupl duplicate samples at three different concentrations, and then there were outside air samples. Produced a to total of 28 different spore trap slides. And those 28 slides were sent to seven different laboratories. And we got all of the results back and crunched through the numbers. And very interesting in that, from a statistical point of view, there was not a statistical, statistical difference in the results averaging all together between the four different sport trap devices. Hmm. What, what that really means is it didn't say that there isn't a sampling difference. There certainly still may be. But the analytical variability amongst the 28 different samples was so high that you couldn't tell statistically that there was a difference between the four different types of samplers. Interesting. And that's a pretty interesting finding. The, do you think that goes back to your earlier discussion about the analytical error? Or? Yes. Yeah. The, the issue there is the ability of the analyst to accurately quantify what is actually on the spore trap is just so highly variable that it, it masks the efficiency difference between the samplers. And, and clearly, from a theoretical point of view, there should have been some difference. And it should have been substantial, but in, at least in this research project, given the types and size of mold spores that were present in the environment, it was not actually possible to quantitate a difference. Now, now, was that also true, and I'm not sure if you looked at it this way or not, but was that also true if you looked at just one laboratory as opposed to averaging all seven, or did you do both? Did I misunderstand? Now, at, at this point in time, we've only averaged the results from the seven laboratories. At some time in the future, we will be looking at the differences by individual laboratory to see if some of the labs at least did see a difference between the different samplers. Well, that should be interesting, and when you have that information, we'll look forward to uh, hopefully talking to you again about it. Yeah, it'll probably be sometime in the middle of next year. Great. Right. Now, I'm also really interested in, you know, we have a lot of uh, people who are both in the um, remediation and the investigation side of things. And we've talked a little bit about post-remediation verification, and we, we got into the leaf blower and the scrubber issue. Um, are you telling me now that, that the HEPA, wipe HEPA for final cleaning is no longer 
the way to go that um, we, we should throw it out the door or should we um, include some air washing somewhere along that, uh, you know, that path? I'm not sure what you mean by a HEPA white. Well, a lot of people out in the training world will tell you that, you know, you should HEPA vacuum things down first as a part of your final cleaning and then use a wet wipe with, like in the EPA guidelines, a detergent and a water, and then HEPA vacuum again. Oh, okay. The HEPA sandwich, as they call it. As some right. people call it, yes. Um, I think for small size uh, abatement or remediation projects, that's still a good protocol, particularly when cost issues come involved. But if you're dealing with a, a school or a sensitive population or a healthcare facility, uh, anything with high-risk high individuals, I really think you need to be doing air washing as part of your remediation process. So where would you add that in? I mean, it sounds like you're not throwing out HEPA vacuuming and, and wet wiping, but... It would, it would be, where I would recommend it is after you've thoroughly cleaned the environment, after you have HEPA vacuumed the environment, uh, then I would recommend doing the air washing. Then after that, I would do the wet wiping. Okay. So, and, and the wet wiping would be the final step, or yeah. would you air wash one more time? No, I, I bet the wet wiping would be the final step. Final step. Okay. But, but the air washing is probably a series of uh, events done with a particle counter so that you know that the air washing has stirred up the, the particles sufficiently and that your air scrubbers have removed them. So that actually gets repeated, the, the air scrubbing or the, the air washing, and then you watch the levels go up, and then over time you can see they come down. And you air wash again, and the particle levels go up again. So you keep doing the air washing until you air wash, and you don't see the levels rising again. So that step will have to get repeated. It can be accompanied by some HEPA vacuuming on surfaces to at least keep you know stop from re-entraining things, because your air scrubber is going to get the stuff that's airborne. Some of the larger particles may settle out on surfaces, so you may end up doing the air washing and a little HEPA vacuuming of visible stuff um, and continue that until the levels are low enough that you think you, you've stirred up everything that you can. Then you can do the final wipe down um, or I would say or, or HEPA vac, one or the other um, as your final step. You know, Bob and Gail, if you could comment on this, I'd appreciate it. My, my son and I are big sushi fans, and we eat sushi out probably once a week together. And when we go to a sushi restaurant and you get a roll, sometimes you can have the fish on the outside. Sometimes you can have the fish on the inside. And this goes back to this HEPA sandwich situation where typically you'd HEPA first, damp wipe in the middle, and then HEPA vacuum again. What about the reverse of that? Damp wiping first, HEPA vacuuming. And then damp wiping again. Can you comment? Well, I kind of look at it as, as what's the most effective way at, at getting up a lot of the junk that's in there, whether it's dust or mold spores or just cotton fibers or whatever. What's the most effective way at doing that? And HEPA vacuuming or just vacuuming gets up a lot of the debris. And that, that really needs to be your first step. Why generate a lot of 
dirty wet wipes if you can get a lot of that stuff up first. So I I, I always recommend vacuuming as, as the first step once all the all the contaminated materials are removed. Okay. And then the issue of, of wet wiping is it's kind of a mixed bag. If, if you look at the literature on, on cleaning surfaces, wiping works fairly well on smooth surfaces. But once you get involved with two-by-fours and concrete floors and, and unfinished the drywall, Wiping, you know, it removes crud, but it really doesn't clean the surface. Uh, and, and in many respects, what, what they're using a bleach solution or other type of disinfectant, what they're doing is disinfecting, but they aren't removing that much crud. So I kind of look at the, the wiping thing as just kind of a, a final cleaning of, um, of stuff that's left there. And since it's a wet-type surface, it potentially can reduce bacteria count. I rely on HEPA vacuuming to remove the major debris. What about fogging? Could you comment on that? Fogging either just water, uh, you know, water with a detergent as you would in asbestos, or even uh, fogging an antimicrobial agent that was permissible for that application in terms of assisting with this post-verification clearance. Well, I, I wish I had a good answer on fogging. Um, I understand the technology. I know it is used. Um, we sterilize medical devices with fogging with ethylene oxide. It clearly can kill stuff. But fogging is more designed to, to kill rather than clean. You, even with fogging, you have the issue of what's left over. Now, if you're bringing up the question of mist control to reduce dust during demolition, I think that's useful. Now, there's some people who say... <laughs> Sorry, Bob, but you hit on a big one there. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and that was really the way that I had intended it. I wasn't trying to fog the kill things. I was trying to use droplets, particularly even larger droplets, to just try to cleanse the air of dust and, you know, other particulate matter that's, that's there. Well, we've used um, particle counters during demolition. And you can get up to a quarter of a million, half a million uh, particles um, in the air during demolition. That's not good for anybody. And the misting can definitely help keep a lot of the gypsum dust and other types of, um, you know, materials out of the air uh, very effectively as they are used uh, with asbestos. And the wetting agent, the detergent that can be used in conjunction rather than just pure water, will help bring it down to the scale of the particles, not just um, water droplet size. So that, that can be very effective. But, Gil, you, get, you gave, you know, you threw out these two figures, a quarter of a million to a half a million during demolition. Do, do you have any idea or just could you guess or based on your statistical data that you've gathered what, it, what we might be able to reduce it to if we had a half a million in the air and we were doing some misting? Any idea? We need a lot to see a lot more research on that. Unfortunately, we've been in, in situations where you know, get or don't. Clients aren't saying, "Okay, let's make a research project." <laughs> you know, we'd love, we'd love to have that opportunity. Um, Bob, any other thoughts? Well, the the only uh, pers 
perspective I can give you on that is is particle count in asbestos jobs. We really haven't had the opportunity to do, conduct this research in the mold remediation job. In, in asbestos jobs where you're using a lot of water and misting, you can get particle counts down to under 10,000. Really makes a difference, Absolutely. dry versus wet. I mean, if, if you've ever done an asbestos project using dry removal because it's below 32 degrees Fahrenheit, you get clouds of dust. You'll, you can you can get 20 million particle counts. And during a wet removal, you can be under 10,000. So it's a huge difference in the particle count. We've done um, asbestos jobs in downtown Chicago, and the levels inside um, the containment during gross removal of friable asbestos were less than on the street outside. Wow. Because of wet methods, misting and wet methods. So it, it can be very effective. Well, we're here. We're... Uh knocking down a bunch of uh myths here today i hope i hope people are listening and they will uh help contribute to your future research on these issues i've got a couple quick ones but we've got we're running out of time um will air sample will, will air filtration devices be on or off during sampling in the future during clearance during post remediation verification testing correct well, the way that we have decided to answer that issue, and a lot of people are asking that, is it depends what you're trying to prove by your testing. If you look at a lot of the PRV guidelines that are out there by ACJH and EIHA and others, they will say that your post-remediation verification is supposed to determine if the space is suitable for occupancy. If I go in there and I do PRV testing with air scrubbers going and NAMs going, I am not testing that space under normal conditions. If I have a small amount of mold that was still unfound in the wall growing, that will be masked by my air scrubbers and by my NAMs. So I come out with a low number, but that is not representative of the space. That is not determining that the space is suitable for reoccupancy. Um, it would have to be, if you wanted to determine that, you would more likely want to have the NAMs off. But we have the people from asbestos abatement that say, oh, you can't turn the equipment off if the space is still dirty. Okay, then if I do test with the filtration devices running, all I am telling you is that I have probably removed the mold from that space, from those surfaces possibly, but not from the building as a whole. So what we see people do, if you want to have, again, a belt and suspenders mentality, like a hospital or a high-risk environment, that you may first do some PRV testing with the filtration devices running to be sure that you're not shutting it off and contaminating the whole space or the whole building. Then you would turn them off and sample a day or so later to see that that space is suitable for reoccupancy. Okay. Now... So that's a long, I guess, the long... Uh, answer to that no that's a good answer that's what we you know that's what we uh, need to hear is people need to understand the issue a little bit better because it's been a problem and it's been a difficult question to answer and there's a reason it's been difficult to answer but uh, if you have done a good job of identifying where the mold is and you have very little chance of hidden mold left in the walls if you've done your air washing and you've thoroughly cleaned that space and you've shown that with particle counting and proper 
HEP vacuuming and wet wiping procedures, then you should feel fairly comfortable turning the equipment off, waiting that day, and testing the space. Then you will be able to determine it's suitable for reoccupancy. Okay. So we feel that that set of procedures is pretty foolproof in most situations. Now, Gil, I, I can't go before I mention two things. One, we have to come back and discuss the um, post-remediation verification once AIHA decides what they're going to come out with in their green book, they're looking at this cleanliness standard and maybe using uh, just dust sampling as a clearance sampling protocol. I know there's a lot of controversy about that, and we'll, I guess we'll have to bring you back for another discussion on that sometime, Bob. But Absolutely. I, I'm, <laughs> I think that's silly. Uh, it's, it's one of the – I think it's a very poor recommendation. Yeah, dust, I, I, dust, if we're – if someone retains us to look at mold and you don't bother testing for mold as part of your PRV, you're not doing your job. And I would not want to be the one on the witness stand where they, where they ask you, did you test for mold? No, I just tested for dust. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Guys. I don't want to be there either, Bob, that's for sure. Now, <laughs> Gil, know, I understand you're doing a presentation at IAQA on fit testing and a little bit something that's kind of near and dear to my heart because I, I do so much training for remediators. You're going to go over the pros and cons of the four different, uh, what is it? Let me get it right here now. Qualitative procedures. Yeah, we're, looking, we're going to be looking at qualitative fit testing because I do feel a lot of remediators are probably going to be relying on that. And I, I've seen a lot of, um, I guess, poor technique out there. And, and I don't think it's rocket science. I think it's something that contractors can easily get their head around. And I think it's good to know what their options are, what the four different methods are, their pros and cons, how they can utilize them, and, and why bother doing fit testing in mold remediation. So we're going to be looking at some of those issues. Great. And, Bob, you're doing two presentations, one on the uh, research that you're doing, and I, I forget what the other one is. Well, Bob is going to do two, one on two on Monday on post-remediation verification, clearance testing, to review the levels and to give kind of an update on some of the more current thinking on that on Monday. Also on Monday, I'm giving a talk on when can your HEPA-filtered equipment be your worst enemy. Uh, so that broach a little bit of what we talked about today. And then on Tuesday, along with my fit testing talk, Bob is going to talk about interlaboratory variability in spore trap analysis. Excellent. And you get a double dose of both of us. All right. Well, we'll hopefully get a, a recap for those that aren't able to make it out to the uh, event. And last, I've got to ask the question, Bob, how's the electric DeLorean coming along out there? I've, I've got... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of an interesting project. Uh, is it done or is it in process? <laughs> yeah, the car actually runs and drives. We are in the process now of trying to source lithium-ion batteries out of China because they don't make them in this country big enough for cars. Once we get that, uh, we're going to have a, a real nice uh, fully electric car that I don't have to buy gasoline anymore. I think CJ's got a clip for you on that. What do you My got there? My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious shit. <laughs> <laughs> I've always been a fan of, of, the, uh, of, the, of the DeLorean. You can just ask my father here. Absolutely. We actually dug out a, um, a model remote-controlled DeLorean from our old building uh, 
about a week ago, and I just gained all kind of uh, geek street cred with my friends because uh, we found that. Oh, that's great. Well, if you want to see some interesting cars, go to brandmuffinindustries.com, and they have wizards on wheels, and you'll see a few interesting cars there. Brandmuffinindustries.com. It's not D. It's just brand. Brand muffin. Ah. Healthy food. Gotcha. Now, please tell me that you're not going to go ahead and paint that car. No. No. Thank you. I hate it when people paint those cars. They were never meant to be painted. Yeah. Yeah, the stainless is classic. It is classic, yes. Well, great. Well, hopefully someday we'll get a chance to come up and check it out, or you can drive on down here to Pittsburgh in your electric and no-gas DeLorean. I love it. Well, thanks so much, Bob and Gail, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. And uh, great to have you back, and hopefully we'll get you back again after the conference when you've got some more interesting information for our listeners. And um, this is Joe Hughes. I've got to wrap things up here real quick. I'm saying thanks again to our guest for this week, uh, to the cyber jockey, CJ, our technical director. Dr. Wow wasn't able to make it this week, but he'll be back uh, again here in two weeks. And, of course, our sponsors, Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.